If you will, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 16. This morning, just want to encourage you to have your Bible ready to be just turning to a few places this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at those. So my father-in-law was a highway patrolman. You can only imagine what that was like when I went to go ask for the first time if I could take his daughter to Sunday lunch, of all things. I still had to go talk to him. Some of you know this story, but you can only guess. When I went to go ask him, this highway patrolman was doing something in the living room. He had it all laid out on the coffee table. He was cleaning his revolver. So anyway, well, after he retired from being a highway patrolman, he became a flight instructor. And so one day he asked if I would like to go with him flying. I thought, I love flying. I mean, I absolutely love flying. I like it when they take off. Because when you take off, it kind of has this surge, almost like a roller coaster. And I have to watch myself because just recently, every time it took off, I want to put my hands up and go, woo, like that. But here's the thing. Most people on a plane are not that excited about flying. And I realized this in a really bad way one time because the person next to me was very obviously nervous. And he wondered why, like what I knew that he didn't. And I just thought, I mean, this is going to be the funnest thing ever. And I was telling him, like, I just enjoy it. Man, when we take off, it's going to be like a roller coaster. And they said, well, I don't like roller coasters. And like, okay, it's bad. It's going to be bad for you. But anyway, I didn't say that. Just thought that. But uh, what really got bad is when they started announcing, now I just want to ask you, be honest, how many of you, when you fly, you actually listen to the steward or stewardess do their spiel? One, two, three. There's a few of you. Thanks for being honest. A few of you listen to that. Well, I happen to be listening uh, accidentally, and while I'm listening, it caught me off. It just caught funny, and I started laughing, and this person next to me is trying to listen to the instructions, and they don't don't think this is very funny. And they say, what's so funny about that? I said, well, they just said, in case of emergency, the oxygen's going to drop. Put it on and breathe normally. I thought, that's interesting. You know, we're in a big hollow tube. We're five miles up in the air going about 700 miles an hour. Something goes wrong. We're falling out of the sky. And I'm going to put this on and start breathing normally. And you know why? Because we have our seatbelt on, right? And I like this. And this person didn't think any of that was like, like stewardess, can I have another seat? Anyway, so I love flying until this particular day. My father-in-law takes me up in the smallest plane created. There was not even room for parachutes. I was actually looking for the parachutes. Because when he got in and shut the door, his shoulder was against this door. When I got in, my shoulder was against his shoulder. And when I shut my door, my shoulder over here is against this door. That means this plane's this wide. I didn't care for it one bit. It was not a fun, I didn't tell him that, but I did not care one bit for this flight. But here's what I'm trying to get to. You're like, oh, finally, you're getting to the point. The point is, when I got, we got to a certain point, my father-in-law pulled out what he called a pre-flight checklist. And even though he has been flying for now a long time, every time he flies, 
he goes around the plane and does a checklist, but when he gets in his seat, he goes through all these things, and I'm so close I can look at it. And I ask him uh, probably a not very wise or smart question. I say, like, well, you've been flying all these years. Don't you know all this stuff? And he goes, hold it. Don't take anything for granted. A pilot never takes anything for granted. We have a checklist. It does not matter how often you have flown. You always go over this checklist to make sure you get every detail. You don't want to just leave it to your memory. You want to check it off. Well, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, and if you will, look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians 16, there's two verses we'll camp on, verses 13 and 14, and I just want to say that this is like a checklist. In fact, let's read it, and I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14 say this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And so here Paul has written a letter, 1 Corinthians. If you know anything about this letter, it is not the most encouraging letter there is. It is to a church that has been immoral, they have been unethical, they have been unbiblical, they are an absolute mess. And so 1 Corinthians is to address some of the things that are going on. And so when he gets done with all of this address, it's kind of like as he ends the letter, he goes, hey, just one more time so that you like will have this on your mind and maybe let this be a checklist of everything that I have mentioned in this letter. Here's kind of like just the uh, points of what I have said. He says, be watchful. And it's interesting, all five of these are imperatives. All five of these, he's like commanding. And whenever he would say, be watchful, they would remember back in the letter what he was talking to them about. Like, you need to be watchful because you have not been watchful. Or stand firm in the faith because you have not been standing firm in the faith. And you just need to remember that you need to do this and on and on. And so this morning, I just want to talk to you about two of them. And here's the first one, and it is to be watchful. So Paul is saying to them, be watchful. It's interesting, again, over and over and over, Paul uses this particular word 22 times throughout the New Testament. He is saying, be watchful. And here's the reason he's saying to the Corinthians, you need to be watchful because you have grown indifferent to things. And you're allowing old things to sneak back, or not sneak back, they were just right open, allowing things to come back into their lives and then into the life of the church. And they were indifferent. And so if you write anything down, if you want to, you can do this. I'd encourage you to, just to remember but to be watchful when there is a hint of indifference. So just for a moment, why the word hint? Hint, and here's why I put hint. Because when it comes to just a hint of something, uh, I want you to know this, there it is, growth and drift. Like growing in your faith upward and drifting, starting to go downward, they both happen just little by little. Like, sometimes unnoticed. 
Some of you in your Christian walk, you might be wondering, like, am I growing? Because honestly, at times, it happens little by little. Often, for those of us that are followers of Christ, it's not big leaps, but it is small steps. And so you have to realize, don't get discouraged. But at the same time, the opposite of growing is drifting away from the things of the Lord. That happens little by little as well. And so the encouragement is when there is a hint of indifference. And many of you know what indifference means. Indifference just means a lack of concern, a lack of interest, becoming apathetic. Now here's why I would say when there's a hint of indifference to be watchful. Because when there is indifference, the thing that follows is rationalization. Because when you get indifferent, like, well, I don't really care all that much about that. Uh, That doesn't really bother me. Uh, Like, uh, you just become apathetic towards maybe some things of the Lord. Or maybe even some things, they're just morally right. And you become indifferent to those. What just naturally follows after there's indifference is then you begin to rationalize, rationalize. Like, well, is it that bad? Like, well, everybody maybe, or I know a few that are doing, and like, is it really that bad? And then rationalization just takes you to places that you never want to be. And so I want to encourage you, if you will, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and take a hard left, if you will, and go to the book of Proverbs. It's there in your notes and on the screen as well, but Proverbs, if you will, chapter 4. If you have never read, underlined, or marked in your Bible, I would encourage you this particular passage as well. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 through 27, some of y'all's translation says keep, some of y'all says guard, but it says keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life, put away from you evil or crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. And so, just stopping there for a moment, uh, maybe indifferent in what you are saying, or the speech that you're using, or just indifferent of how you are saying things that you're saying. You know how that goes. Like, you might be speaking the truth, but you're just speaking it in such a way that it's just not really good. Or maybe how you speak to people like who are really close to you. Like you get so accustomed to being around them, you just kind of speak your mind and you say it in such a way that might be just hurtful. And it's interesting, why would this particular proverb start out with watch what you say? And all of you know this, right? What you say reveals what's in your heart. And so your speech reveals the condition of your heart. And so he says, hey, above all else, you need to be very diligent to keep your heart. And when it comes to how you're talking, you need to really pay attention because it shows what your heart is all about. But then it goes to say this, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze to be straight before you. And so maybe have become indifferent in where your focus is. And you know this to be true. That whatever you focus on often develops. 
And so where is your focus? So watch out, he's saying. If your focus, you're getting indifferent, you're getting careless, you're kind of getting like uh, it's really not that big of a deal, you begin to rationalize where your focus is. Here's the last one. It says, and ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure, and do not swerve to the right or to the left, or turn your foot away from evil. In other words, becoming indifferent in where you go. And so you see kind of the slippery slope of when you're not being watchful and diligent with your heart. Man, your speech gets off, your gaze gets off, where you go uh, gets off. If you will, now I want you to take a hard right and go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter has much to say. If you know anything about the book of 1 Peter, it is written to those who are going through incredible persecution. And so Peter is saying to them, you need to be watchful as well. As you go through persecution and when you suffer, rationalization can become even more easy. Like, I'm going through this difficult time, and so maybe God wouldn't mind me doing or participating in this. And so he's saying to those who are suffering, you need to be on guard. And here in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Some of you this morning have a King James Yours probably says it probably clearer or more accurate as what the meaning is. It says this, gird up the loins of your mind. And so girding up, for you and I, that doesn't mean a lot. But for these people back then, uh, so men, they, they, didn't, they didn't make pants back then. And so a man like wore a robe or more like a kilt-like thing. And so when you went to work or if you went to battle, you would have your belt on and you would shod up your robe. You would pull it up and tuck it in your belt. You would, if it was an encumbrance, you were getting it out of the way so you could do your work, so you could go to battle. And so what Peter is saying here, listen, your thoughts that are encumbrance, your attitude your indifference, if there is any of that, you need to what? Gird it up. You need to pull it in. You need to, like, get that out of being an encumbrance to you. So with that in mind, he says this. Now that you have that picture, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind or prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So pull that in. In that same letter, take a right, go over to chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Here's another reason why you and I should be vigilant about being watchful. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You and I must be watchful of any indifference in our lives. Again, if you like to write things down, you might write this. Number two is be watchful of your pace. It will serve soon turn to haste 
I didn't necessarily mean to make that rhyme, but it does, so maybe it'll help. But the truth is, if you don't watch your pace of life, it will then turn into haste. And honestly, the Scriptures will look at it. Nothing really good comes from haste. In fact, if you will, turn back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19 kind of gives you an idea about haste. Proverbs 19.2. Again, some of y'all's translation, it begins with the word desire. Or some of uh, y'all, it starts with passion or maybe the word zeal. And so it says, to have zeal without knowledge is not good. And he who makes haste with his feet will miss his way. So if I was going to be asked to like, uh, like put words to that, and no one's ever asked me, so don't worry, okay? So like the message, if you've ever read the message, where Eugene Peterson has taken the scripture and he's kind of put it in a more readable way, you have to be careful. That can be very dangerous. But if I was going to take this verse, it would be this, because I've said this. I'm not sure where I'm going, but I'm getting there fast. Right? And here's what Proverbs 19 is saying. You need to be very careful with having zeal, but no knowledge, because haste just doesn't come to a good end. In fact, in Proverbs, take and go back a little bit to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verses 15 and 16. And if you... I was about to say a young person, but anyone should memorize these verses. It's pretty simple. Proverbs 14, 15, and 16. You can at least get the reference right. That's easy. It's good for me. But Proverbs 14, 15, and 16 say this. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. The prudent gives thoughts to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. Be careful with the pace of life. Because your pace, if you don't watch out, you'll get to be hasty and reckless. And it just doesn't end well. And here's my third one. My third one is this. Be watchful if you have an attitude I've got this. So if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will start in verse 1. And I want to explain to you why I say this particular phrase, I've got this. Like, just be very watchful when you have the attitude of like, I've got this. I've said this many times. I, I used to be an oil field welder, and I'm not saying this out of pride, but I was pretty good. But if I ever had the attitude of got this, uh, something usually didn't go well. Uh, I love to go camping and backpacking. And I've said this before, oh, I've got this. I've gotten in the middle of nowhere, and I didn't have something that I needed in my backpack. So just be careful when you say, I've got this. I I'm good. If you will, look at chap chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And just kind of go with me as we read through this and get what he's saying. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in the Moses into the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. And so this is the story of what? Moses bringing the children of Israel out of bondage. They would know the story. They would know it very well. And so he's kind of bringing them up. This is what I want to talk to you about. And then he says in verse 5, Even though you know this story, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, Now these took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down, they ate, they drank, they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one single day. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And I read all of this. I want you to get to verse 12. He says, therefore, looking back at their example, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed It's an imperative. It is like the strongest way he could say, listen, I've told you this story. You've seen all these examples of these folks. I want you to realize if you think you've got this, that you are to take heed. If you have the like attitude like, hey, I've got this. Uh, Nothing's going to happen to me. I've got this kind of attitude. He says, take heed lest you fall. So I want to tell you a, a little thing that happened. It's not a little thing. Tell you th- something. So Dallas Theological Seminary had an incredible teacher. He was a preacher, speaker, professor. His name was Dr. Howard Hendricks. If you ever heard that name, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you ever have read or get opportunity to listen to him uh, preach or teach, you can you to him to him. It's incredible. So Dr. Howard Hendricks, a beloved professor, many have come through his classes and became pastors. And so this uh, happened years ago, but in a two-year period, he had counted 246 pastors who had fell morally. And the reason it really caught his attention because some of them were in his class at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he cared about them. And it happened in two years. He counted, he counted 246 in a two-year period that had fallen into sexual immorality. That was a long time ago. Guess what? It is still happening. It is a daily, a daily thing. You might not hear about it because they might not be the high-profile pastor, 
but it is happening often. And so Dr. Henschen was very concerned, and so what he did is he took of his own time, and the school helped him out as well, to allow him to be able to interview all of these men. And his conclusion was that all of them were true believers, true followers of Christ. And as he began to interview them, he began to put together what he would consider a pattern because he wanted to kind of see like what was happening so that he could come and help other students and other people to not get into the situation. And, and just by the way, this is about um, pastors, it's about men, but women, you're not off the hook either, okay? So just hear this as well to take heed. And so as Dr. Henderson put this together, here's some things that he found. Number one, none of these men was involved in any kind of real personal accountability. In other words, there was no one that could speak into their life. And this is not just for like a pastor. This is like if you are a follower of Jesus, you need the church in your life. But you need like at least a person who is in your life to the point of being able to speak into your life and ask you like difficult questions. And so my, my deal is always, if, if you run from that, like what do you got to hide? And so seek it out. Like if you're a believer, if you're a new believer, seek out another believer. Like to be able to get together and talk and ask questions and honestly ask some hard questions. And I always say this, if you're a young man, find an older man because most older men won't mind asking you some very hard questions. I've been with the same age guys, and sometimes we'll just kind of uh, back and forth and yeah, whatever, la, 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 and never get to like really seriously serious questions. And I've heard some say, well, I have the Holy Spirit in my life. Well, okay, uh, are you listening to him? Well, maybe have someone else as well. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's not enough, but having other people in your life to be able to ask you hard questions hard questions. So none of them were any personal accountability. Each of these men had ceased a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, worship, their own spiritual growth. What had taken place is their sermon prep had become what they were doing. And sermon prep is important. But honestly, if your personal walk with God is not what it should be, your sermon prep, you, a person, I could get up here, Marty could get up here, you could get up here and flower you with all this uh, stuff, but yet in our hearts we would know that is not true, that is not what is happening in my heart. And so they had all stopped. They had stopped their own personal growth. Third thing he found, more than 80% of these men became involved in a way they shouldn't, because of our children, I'll say it that way, because they had begin, begun counseling women and spending extra time with them. Here's the last one. Without exception, all of them, all 246 in one way or another, said this phrase. This type of fall would never happen to me. They all said, 
It'll never get there. It'll never get to that point. I've got this. I'm okay. I can handle this. So be very watchful whenever there's an attitude, I got this. So I just want to confess before all of you, I do not have this. And I have some guys in my life, and some of the questions they ask, oh, my goodness. Like, I don't know if I gave them permission to ask that. I mean, I've never said that, but it's like, wow. And I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Here's the second one. The second imperative, he says here, is stand firm in the faith. If you will, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 15. 15 verse 1 we'll we'll hang out there in 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment listen to what Paul says now I would remind you brothers of the gospel so he's being very specific about the faith he's very very specific he's talking about the gospel I preach to you which you received in which you stand And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And so if you, again, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that it is like correction, correction, correction. But when you get to chapter 15, it's a little different. And then chapter 16 is kind of back to remember what I've told you. Well, chapter 15 of all the scripture is probably the most doctrinal writing about the resurrection of Jesus than any other place in the Bible. And so he is saying to them, listen, you must get the gospel right because it is really bad if you don't. And so he is saying here the gospel is important because look, if you will, in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance. I I don't even know how to explain to you what Paul... He is saying, listen, above everything I've ever written or told you, you must get this right. Because hear me, it's hell if you get the gospel wrong. He's saying, listen, if you get the gospel wrong, all these other things... It doesn't matter because if you get this wrong, it's really bad. And he says, of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So turn, if you will, in that chapter to the very end, verse 58. Many of you have had this memorized. Verse 58 As he ends this kind of uh, writing on the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast. Steadfast means, it literally means to be seated. It means that you are settled on this thing. It is being very firm on something. The very next word, again, many of you have memorized this. You could just quote this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Immovable is just another intense rendering of being steadfast. 
It means that you are settled on this once and for all. And so, if you will, with me, I want to walk through the New Testament for just a little bit. And I just want to talk about standing firm in the faith. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we're going to kind of do this systematically. So, if you'll go to Acts... And then we will just keep going to the right for just the next few moments. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There are way more passages than these, but these are ones I'm going to use today about Jesus is the only, absolutely only way that God has provided. So Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men and so given among men what's that telling you it's given from God so God has not given any other option there is only one name that God has given by which we must be saved you know, you probably have heard, well, God is a loving God, so he gives many, many ways. God is a loving God. He gave one way. I would say that's more loving. And as we walk through this, and not just loving, but glorifying to himself, he gave one way. If you will, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still weak, honestly, is weak, weak. Because you know, according to like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, while we were weak in our sins, is that what Ephesians 2, 1 says? But while we were dead in our sins. I would say that was weak. If you're dead in your sin. Because while we were weak or dead at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No other. He gave no other options. Christ died for us. Take a right. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20. For in him, and you know this is talking about Christ, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So God chose to do it this particular way, no other way, that he would reveal himself and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or whether in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. No others, 
It wasn't somebody else or other options, but it was through Christ and Christ alone. If you will, continue to go right and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So a mediator is what? Someone who has honestly the interest of both. And so who could well mediate between God and man but the perfect God-man, Jesus, to bring together. It was only one, only one. And here's what's interesting to me. It's always been a battle, but it's like everyone in all different religions, everyone can be God but Jesus, right? Like, oh, they're God, and he's God, and he claims to be God, but when it comes to Jesus, no. But it's the perfect God-man who is the mediator, And if you will, one last time, turn, if you will, to the right. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, it really helps you understand the book of Leviticus. And so the next time you're reading through the Bible and you come to Leviticus and you go, you can either watch four years worth of Marty Brown preaching through Leviticus, I mean that in a good way, or, and read through the book of Hebrews. It helps you understand what was going on and why God set all this up in the Old Testament. It was a thing that happened every day. It was on and on and on, and people never had this assurance that their sin was completely forgiven. It's like over time they would come to a place and go like, surely this goat that I brought shedding its blood is going to take care of my sin and my heart. And it was over and over and over again. And, of course, that's how God set it up. Like, no, it doesn't, but it's pointing to. And it's pointing to Christ. And here in Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 11, you kind of, if you know Old Testament, you know Leviticus, it makes a lot of sense to you because it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. If you read the Old Testament, you will never hear that phrase. A priest never sat down. His job was never finished. He would do his thing with the sacrifice and take the blood into the Holy of Holies, and he would do it over, and they would do it over and over and over and over again. In fact, if you read in the temple and the tabernacle, they never never were instructed to build a seat for him just to sit down because his work was done, because it never was. 
And yet Jesus, it says here, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. It's interesting how this phrase is. It means that it is a done action and the results are eternal. So Jesus dies on the cross 2,000 years ago, and the result of that is an eternal result of when you place your faith in him, of that he has cleansed you, made you his child. It is a one thing. He did it completely and fully. And so I, I would just say it like this to you. God made one way to be at peace with us. I hope you heard that right. God made one way to be at peace with us. Because most would think we have to make peace with God. A lot of issues with that. A dead person cannot make peace with God. They're dead. It is God whose wrath, for those of you in this room that know Christ, his wrath was against you. And for those of you, and with all the love in my heart, without Christ, his wrath is against you. In fact, you need to be more afraid of God than the devil. Because God's wrath against you is the ultimate worst it could ever be. And it was God choosing to make a way to be at peace with us. And so the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the God-man, came and for his whole life lived a perfect life every commandment that god gave he kept he wrote them so he could keep them right he came and he lived a perfect life that you and i impossible to live it's impossible there's no one that can live a perfect life there's no one that ever has or ever will and jesus came he lived a perfect life And Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was against us on the cross. And that's just a good reminder that whenever you and I are singing, and especially singing about the cross, of realizing it's just not a a thing or it's not like something we wear around our neck. It It is the place where God satisfied his wrath against us on Jesus. He absorbed it all. Jesus rose from the dead, confirming that God's wrath is satisfied. And I'll just just tell you, this would be me. If you're a follower of Christ, this was you. But for me, I'll say it in first person. When I heard the gospel... God used the gospel to awaken my dead heart 
And he gave me, hear me, it's a gift. He gave me faith and repentance to respond. A dead person cannot respond. But yet, when the gospel is spoken, and the Spirit of God takes the gospel and awakens a dead heart, and I still remember it. I, I don't know how I could forget it. I was between 2021, I've forgotten that, but I still remember where I was and what it was like. And it was like, I've been in church my whole life, but yet it's like I, it's like I never heard this before. And the reason it was is because God had awakened my dead heart and he gave me the ability to be able to trust him. And here's the thing. Salvation happens in such a way that you and I have nothing to boast about. And honestly, if you have difficulty maybe with the assurance of your salvation, with again, I've struggled with this before, but the thing is, sometimes struggling with the assurance of salvation is you think that there was maybe something that you had a part of in your salvation. And so if you had 1%, you know, like you had 1% and you're getting saved and God's 99%, well, your 1% is always going to be the doubt. It's always going to be the like, well, what about that part? And here's the thing. God saves in such a way that none of us can boast or look back on anything we've ever done or said or behaved or thought. It is done in such a way that it gives all boasting to him. And then the result of that, Paul said, is what? When you read Romans 1 through 11 and you see how God brought about salvation and at the very beginning of chapter 12, you realize that your really only reasonable response as a follower after being awakened from the dead, being adopted into the family of God, is what? That your life and my life would be a living sacrifice. And that honestly is like what our lives should look like. It's a living daily sacrifice. And here would be, for those of you maybe here or listening online, or maybe you'll listen to this later, is that you have heard the gospel. And do you sense that God is waking up your dead heart? Because if so, he's given you ability to say yes to him. And so my plea today would be if you hear the gospel and your heart is open that you would respond to him would you pray with me Father I pray that you'd help us to be watchful and stand firm in the faith and act like men be strong. Help us to, in everything we do, it be characterized by love. An onslaught would be if there is anyone hearing has never submitted to you, pray today. They might say yes to you.
you'd awaken their dead hearts. And God, for those of us, me being first, to say thank you once again. And I pray that you'd help me to live a life that looks like a living sacrifice every day. I pray my life would be characterized by someone whose allegiance is to one, and that's to you. It would show in my speech and thought, my attitude, my actions. I pray it would be lived out daily. You are worthy of it. I pray you'd remind each of us today, you're worthy of all our worship and praise and all our action to honor and glorify you. I pray today if there's a person that maybe is indifferent and is not as watchful as they should, may you once again by your Holy Spirit tap them on the shoulder, help them to turn before stepping too further away. I pray today if anyone is relying on anything else other than the one way that you have given to be at peace with us, they would turn to you today. As we leave this place, I pray our hearts will be filled with gratefulness and gratitude for the goodness that you've shown us. I ask this in your name.